started a series on heaven, and um, I, I want to continue that over the next months, and today's the second message in, in that series. So, I started off by just saying this, that often we don't think very much about heaven until we ourselves are confronted with death, until we ourselves perhaps lose uh, a parent, or in our family we have some kind of tra tragedy, and uh, then our hearts and our minds turn themselves towards heaven, and we start thinking about eternity. And so my desire in doing this is, is twofold, really, is to help us understand what the Bible teaches about heaven, uh, to enable us to live lives that are joyful and free of fear, but also uh, we pray all the time as Christians, don't we? We pray, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when Jesus taught that prayer, he had something in mind. He, when, he, when, he, when he said those words, he was thinking about what he was saying and saying, what I know of heaven, I want that to come to earth, and that's what you need to pray for. And so there's a twofold desire in my heart uh, to help us understand what the Bible says heaven is, that we can live here on earth in a powerful way, in, a, in, a, in a, a fearless way, knowing what is in store for us, and at the same time living here wonderfully. Are you with me? So that's what I'm trying to do. So I, I, I had a look in my first session about various views that people have held about heaven. And I started off and said, well, children have a particular view of heaven. And I had a look at Dietrich Bonhoeffer as a child and what he imagined heaven would be. I then had a look at a, a, a well-known atheist called Julian Barnes and what he thought heaven would be. And remember, he had this uh, kind of humorous take on heaven in terms of that it was just the fulfillment of every desire that he had on earth. It would be fulfilled in heaven. I had a look at some authors. I had a look at Ernest Hemingway and Mark Twain and their view on what heaven might be. And then I also looked at, uh, referenced some um, book, books of literature, Bunyan and Dante and others that have written famous works that have influenced our culture. And we, we understand something of heaven through what they wrote, Pilgrim's Progress and other books like that. I said, well, uh, referenced Eric Clapton, who wrote a wonderful song called Tears in Heaven. How many of you know that song? Absolutely beautiful song. His imaginings of what heaven might be, he tragically lost his four-year-old son who fell out of a high-rise building and died, and he wrote that song as a response to that. No more tears in heaven. Beautiful, beautiful song. And uh, Michelangelo's fa famous painting of the final judgment, if you've been to Italy, you might have seen it yourself. And all of these things influence how we think of heaven. And I said to you, my challenge was that often we are more influenced by our culture, by what we read, what we see on television or movies that we see, rather than being influenced by what the Scripture says. And I want to encourage you as Christian believers that we need to know what the Bible says if we call ourselves Christian. All right, well, what does the Bible say about heaven? And we have to work a little bit, and that's part of uh, this journey that we're on is to try and understand what the Bible says. And I remember C.S. Lewis said this. He said, all these imaginings that we have about heaven, if they are not true, then something much better is. And I want you to remember that. So we, 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 we're trying to engage our imaginations to understand something, what heaven might be like. But even our wildest dreams, even the most beautiful things that we can ever imagine, heaven is far better than that. All right? And I would like to try and convince you of these things as we go through. So I had to look also at the classic Christian creeds. The, uh, the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Westminster Confession. And I said, 
When you look at those in detail, they are helpful in terms of that they affirm that there's an afterlife, that we're going to, there's eternity, but they don't really say much about what heaven is. And so, in that sense, they're not really helpful. And I concluded that if you look at um, church history, there are generally two views of heaven. One is a theocentric view. It focuses on God, and it focuses on worship, and it focuses on God's presence. And I said to you, one of my heroes, A.W. Tozer, is, uh, he's kind of got that kind of view of heaven. I have four devotions that I use on my phone. One is A.W. Tozer, and whenever you read Tozer's devotion, it's all about prayer. It's all about intimacy. It's all about God's presence. It's all about communion with God. And so for Tozer, heaven is very much about worship and prayer and praise and God's presence and adoration. That's what he focuses on. Yeah? And I agree with that. That's a theocentric view, a God-centered view of heaven. And then one of my other heroes, I also have a devotion on my phone with Martin Luther's uh, writings, and daily I read what he has to say. And his view of heaven was much more kingdom-centric. It was much more about justice, much more about reconciled relationships. Uh, That's how he saw heaven. And I said to you that in church history, unfortunately, these two views have been majored on at the one at the expense of the other. So it's either all about God's presence or it's all about social justice and reconciliation and forgiveness and uh, social cohesion. And I said to you that there has to be a balance in these things, in my view. Why? Because we're called to love God with all of our hearts, and we're called to love each other with all of our hearts. And surely heaven is going to be a place where we love God perfectly and completely, and we also love each other perfectly and completely. So it's not one or the other, it's both and. And so I said to you that I'd like to explore some big ideas that the Bible has about heaven before we try and answer all the other questions that people have about heaven. What about near-death experiences? What are, are there animals in heaven? Will I recognize my husband or wife in heaven? These are all the smaller questions. Once we have the big things in place, the big uh, columns in place, we can then answer all the smaller questions. And I'd like to address the first big column today. This is the single most important thing that the Bible teaches about heaven. And it's a very simple thing. It is simply this, that heaven is God's promise to you and to me. It's a promise from God. And that promise is rooted in the resurrection of Jesus. He had the first resurrection body. When he was raised from the dead, he was the first one who was glorified in a perfect resurrected body. And so it's vital that we understand that everything that we hold to about heaven is based upon the resurrection of Jesus. If it wasn't for the resurrection, there would be no heaven for you and no heaven for me. The resurrection of Jesus is God's promise to us that we too one day will enjoy His presence in a glorified body. And so having said that, I just want to make a a further definition in terms of these big thoughts. When When you read in the Scripture, the Bible speaks about heaven in two ways. Two ways. And I'd like to call it heaven with a small h and heaven with a big H, all right? So heaven with a small H. When, do you remember the story of, the, of, of the, the, the thief on the cross? And right at the end, Jesus turns to him and says, Today you will be with me in paradise. Do you remember that story? That is what Jesus was speaking about there, is heaven with a small H. 
Heaven is the place of God's presence in, 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 in that understanding. And the best way I can try and describe what I'm trying to say is this, is that when we die, immediately we are in God's presence, all right? Immediately we enjoy the fullness of His presence. And that, that, that uh, idea is a bit like being in the most wonderful um, holiday resort that you could ever imagine, knowing that there's still something greater that is to come. That's what heaven with a small h is like. That's what the Bible says. Paradise. When we die, we go to Jesus and we live in His presence in paradise. And while I say there's another thing with a big H, heaven with a big H, because the Bible then speaks as well about the presence of God. It speaks of the new heaven and the new earth that will come at the end of all time. That's heaven with a big H. That is the end. That's how it's going to be. And Jesus says, the dead in Christ at the final judgment, right at the end of time, when He calls all things together and the judgment of God comes, the dead in Christ will rise. Those who have been waiting in the hotel, those that have been enjoying God's presence, will rise physically again with a glorified body, and the whole of the earth will be made new. There will be a new heaven. There will be a new earth. There will be a redeemed heaven, a redeemed earth, and you and I will enjoy that in the city of God, which is called the New Jerusalem, not Jerusalem in Israel. It doesn't say that. The New Jerusalem, the, 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 the new thing that God is doing, the new heavens, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem will come down, and that will be where we will dwell with God forever. That is heaven with a big H. Are you with me? So when you read the scripture, you need to be thinking, what is God speaking to, uh, what is God to these verses that we are looking at? Is it heaven with a small h, or is it referring to the end of all time with the new heavens and the new earth? Are you with me? I'm excited. And uh, one of the things that I think uh, is so wonderful about thinking about heaven, it's a great comfort that we can we can stand with, with um, joy and we can face death with joy knowing that we stand looking at an empty tomb. You know, I, I shared the story of my, my, my mother passing. And right now, uh, Tim and Becky, I'd, I'd ask you to pray for them. Becky's mom is literally uh, any moment going to go and be with Jesus. She's been suffering from cancer for, for many, many months now. And uh, we're praying that that passing would be a beautiful one for her. But Tim and Becky can face that with joy. Not, not without grieving. Of course, we all grieve. But Paul says this, we do not grieve as those who have no hope because we have an eternal hope in Christ. I'm trying to get you, get, get you to understand this thing of heaven, this thing of eternity is a promise to you. It's a promise from Jesus. It's a promise from God the Father. And we, 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 we act on that by trusting in God's promise to us. And really... Uh, when I say all, this thing, all these things, the heart of the promise, you, you know where I'm going if you've been in this church for, for any while, the heart of the promise begins with our old friend Abraham. It does. This promise of heaven begins with Abraham. And you know the story. Um, remember, Abraham is about 75 when God gets his attention. And if you've been following all that's happening in Syria, Aleppo. You know where Aleppo is right now in Syria where all the trouble is? 
or Abraham was just very close. That's where he grew up, just very in the northeast of Aleppo, near Aleppo. That's where Abraham grew up. And God gets his attention when he's age 75, and he says, Abraham, get your family, get all your things, and I'm going to show you where I want you to go. I want you to go on a journey. And so he takes his whole family, Sarai and his nephew Lot, and they go on this massive road trip with all their gear, and they go through south, through Syria. They pass Damascus. They go down the Jordan Rift Valley, and they go over the Jordan River to the hills north of Jerusalem. You can trace it on a map. When you get home, you can see the journey of Abraham. And before this amazing road trip that God says Abraham needs to go on, he makes some promises to Abraham. Do you remember what they were? He says, Abraham, you're going to have a big family. He says, you're going to have a family so big, it's going to be an entire nation. I'm going to so bless you that everyone's going to know your name all over the world. This is what Abraham is promised. And uh, this is all wrapped up in this mysterious phrase, which says, if you read it in Genesis, it says that all the people on earth will be blessed through you, Abraham. That's God's pr promise to him. So he has these four amazing promises, a nation-sized family, a global reputation, abundance and blessing and influence over the entire world. I mean, that's a pretty cool promise, wouldn't you say? That's an amazing promise from God. Uh, I want you to think about this as I, as I say this. You know, it's one thing to be promised something. It's another thing to see that promise being brought about. And it's still another thing to trust the one who's promising you. Isn't it true? And he has the rub for Abraham. He has the, the, the big, big block in Abraham's way. Is that he and Sarah have been trying for many, many, many years to make babies, and they can't get it right. They just can't do it. <laughs> He's 75, and she's as old. They've been trying to make babies. The whole promise is wrapped up in the fact that they're going to have babies, and there are no babies to be seen. So you can understand that Abraham is a little bit frustrated. And he says to God, have you not given me any children? It's like, God, I get it. You've promised me all this stuff. But where are the babies? We're doing our best. We're enjoying practicing, but no babies. Help us, God. Where are the babies? That's what he's saying. And then he comes up with his own plan. Abraham, he says, uh, uh, he says this, a, uh, a servant in my household will be my heir. That's what he says. He says to God, ah, okay, well, I can make a plan, God. I'll just, uh, one of my servants will become my heir. And God turns around to him in Genesis 15 and says this, this, ma this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son will be your heir. And he brought him outside and he said, look towards the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them, if you're able to count them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And verse 6 of chapter 15, he gets saved. Abraham gets saved. At this moment, he gets saved, to use our language. He gets born again. Why do I say that? Because it simply says, and he believed God. That's what being born again is. You believe God. Your Noah on the inside of you believes God. You trust Him, His goodness, His kindness. You trust all of His promises. You believe on the inside. And that is counted to Abraham as righteousness. When you believe God in your own life, that all His promises are true, that He's forgiven you, you are born again on the inside, and God credits the righteousness of Jesus to you, and you are saved in that moment. Abraham was a Christian before Jesus came. He was the first Christian. Why? Because he believed God by faith. And that's what we do. We believe by faith in Jesus in the same way that Abraham believed God by faith. 
Am I too loud? Turn it down, Chris, if I'm too loud. And so, Abraham and Sarai, at that, uh, at that, at that stage, the name was, his name was Abram and Sarai. They have a name change. God says, I, from now on, I call you Abraham, and I call you Sarah. And that, that, the promise that was made to them results in this amazing thing that we see in the world today, that even after horrific, horrific testimony of history, where millions of Jews have been killed, not just in this last century, but in the centuries since Christ, Jews have always been persecuted and wiped out. There's been a hatred towards Jewish people. Right now, there are six million Jews, descendants of Abraham, living in Israel. And there are another six million Jews, roughly, living in, in, in America. And there are another two million Jews scattered all over the world in various other nations. Isn't that incredible? In spite of all that, Abraham's descendants, the descendants of the promise, are alive and well and living right now all over the world. God made a promise to an impotent man and an infertile woman and said, through you, I'm going to bless the whole world. That is amazing. That is the God that we serve. And so for me, I want to just try and reiterate again that the God that we serve is a God who makes promises. It's part of who He is. And the whole of the Bible is based on one promise. The whole of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is based on one promise, the promise that was made to Abraham. And we can trust the same God who, makes, who made that promise to Abraham we can trust Him for our lives. We can trust Him for our future. And really the promise of, of heaven is the promise made to Abraham in an eternal form. That's really what it is. Um, there's a guy called Herbert Lockyer who wrote a book called All the Promises of the Bible. And in that book, he counts 8,000 promises. 8,000 promises in the Bible. Now, depending on the translation that you might use, there are 1,350 pages roughly in the Bible. Can you work it out per average? 8,000 promises, 1,350 pages roughly in the Bible. Six, five to six promises every page of the Scripture for you and for me. Come on now. That's one good reason to read the Scripture. Do you want to know what God has promised you? Just read the Scripture. There are promises on every page of His kindness and His blessing and His grace and His love for you and what He wants to do in your life and through your life. Come on, that's worth being excited about. And so... When we look at this promise to Abraham, there are really five little things involved in making the promise. First, there's the promiser, God, who makes the promise. Second, there's the person who the promise is made to, in this case, Abraham and Sarah. Third, there's the substance of the promise. What is being promised? I will make you into a great nation. That's the promise. Fourth, there's a covenant that God cuts. If you know the story, it makes it legally binding. And these animals are cut in true. And it says the presence of God walks between the animals. And that makes it legally binding. It cannot be broken. There's a covenant that comes. And the fifth element is that Abraham had to accept the promise. He had to act on it. He had to trust it by faith. And say, yeah, God, I believe you. And why is that, why is that important to imagine? Because I'm trying to get you to see quite, quite logically that heaven is God's eternal promise to you and I. Heaven cannot be proved by logic. Heaven is not ever going to be discovered by scientists. As interesting as near-death experiences are and people who say they've died and gone to heaven and come back, as interesting as they are, that does not establish heaven. Heaven is only as good as the one who promises. 
And the one who promises is God. And God is good for His promise. That's why I believe in heaven, not because of some, some near-death experience that I've seen on some internet thing on telly or on, on, on YouTube. Some child who dies to, goes to heaven and comes back and, and everyone's, oh, I believe in heaven because of that, what that child has said. No, no, I believe in heaven because of God who has promised it. Through his, and, and, it's, and it's endorsed and made legally binding through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus. And that is why I believe in heaven, because of God's promise to me. No other reason. And I want to convince you that's the, 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 that's the, the basis that you should believe in heaven as someone who believes in Jesus. And so I want to say to you that uh, perhaps the most important thing I, I would like to try and uh, do this morning is just to explore the history of this promise in the Bible. I can't mention every scripture, but I want to read some scriptures to you that speak of this promise of heaven from the scripture. And I pray that as I speak these out, they will wash over you, that they'll wash your mind and your heart, and you'll be convinced by the time that I finish reading them and celebrate with me that this promise is for you. And it's for me and all who believe by faith. Can anyone get excited or not possible? Yeah. Two sources. Jesus. What does he say? Luke 12. Do not be afraid, little flock. All of us have to confront death. Isn't it? Woody Allen famously said, I'm not afraid of dying. I just don't want to be there when it happens. That is funny. You can laugh, but it is funny. We, we try and make poke fun at things that scare us, isn't it? I want to say to you, all of us, little flock, dear ones, under the great shepherd Jesus, all of us as, sh- as sheep, we don't have to be afraid. Why? Because Jesus said so. Your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. John 11. I am the resurrection, says Jesus, and the life. The one who believes in me will never die. Even though... His body dies. Come on now. You should be getting excited already. John 14. Jesus, again. Do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If they were not so, would I have not told you? I am going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back. And I will take you to be with me that you might also be where I am. Jesus promising us that he's made a place for us. Verse uh, 43 of Luke 23. Truly, I tell you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's what Jesus promises the, the criminal I've already referenced. Jesus spoke about heaven in the most wonderful, engaging, uh, beautiful way to convince and bring comfort to his disciples that this is not the end, that there's something far better. Whatever our imaginings are, heaven is far better than all of those. And he's trying to convince you. So let me try and convince you further from the writings of Paul. 1 Thessalonians 4. The Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What is Paul speaking about here? Heaven with a big H at the end. The new heavens and the new earth, this most glorious of all the promises for me, is the promise of the new heaven and new earth. And it carries on in 1 Corinthians 6. By His power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and He will raise us also. Paul is absolutely convinced of heaven. 
in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead, because Jesus was raised from the dead, Paul says, I am trusting in that same power to raise me from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Come on, now. Where is the sting of death? It is gone. Why? Because there's a risen Christ. There's an empty tomb. You and I can boldly stand into the face of death without anxiety, without fear, and pass peacefully from this life into the open door of eternity because of what Jesus has done. With confidence, with boldness, without fear, peacefully, it's eternally secure. Do you believe it? Because, 2 Corinthians 4, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus from the dead will raise us with Jesus and present you to be with himself. 2 Corinthians 4. 2 Corinthians 5. We know in this earthly tent that we live, when it's destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Paul says it over and over and over again. You read his letters, he says it all the time, convincing people of the good thing that is to come in Christ, the resurrection of the dead. We are confident, 2 Corinthians 5, and I say I would prefer to be away from this body and at home with Jesus, Paul says. Ephesians 1, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened in order that you might know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people. And then uh, 1 Timothy 4, physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things, holding promise for this life and the life to come. There's this promise, this eternal promise rooted in the Scripture. Jesus promises it. Paul says it over and over and over again. And I'm trying to convince you that there's a clear and beautiful promise in heaven that is made ours because of the resurrection of Jesus. And instantaneously when we die, we go and be with Christ. And at the end, when the new Jerusalem comes, death itself will die. That's why I say to you the stuff about playing hops and living eternally as a disembodied spirit. That is Greek thinking. That is not Christian thinking. It has never been Christian thinking. Don't think like that anymore. And that's what our movies always encourage us to do, isn't it? To think like that. that We go to heaven and have wings like angels and flutter around and sing with harps. And No, no, no. It's much more earthy, much more, much more glorious than that. And I'm trying to convince you of that this morning. Therefore, Hebrews 12, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and worship God acceptably with reverence and awe. And lastly, 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 1 verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, never spoil, never fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you. Come on now. It's wonderful. It is absolutely, inspiringly wonderful. Revelation 22, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and His his servants will serve Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their forehead, and they will worship Him forever. Come on now. This is what lies ahead of us. We can live boldly now without fear. Why? Because we know that is coming. And if you're not convinced this morning, I hope that you will be. 
I hope that you will put your trust in what Jesus has promised you. Why do I say that? Because the one who was faithful to Abraham will be faithful to you. The one that was faithful to raise Jesus from the dead will be faithful to you. And He has made you a promise. He has made you a promise of heaven. It is for you, secondly, and for me. The content of that promise is sure. The covenant of that promise is Jesus, that He was raised from the dead. The fifth element that we saw is that you need to act on that. You need to trust Him with that promise for you. I can't convince you of that. I can do my best this morning to try and point you to the Scripture, to try and encourage you to see the Scripture for yourself. But at the end of the day, you must be born again. I cannot be born again for you. You must believe in your heart that Jesus is true. You must believe in your heart that He is, he is who said He is, that all the promises He said are true. And as you believe, just like Moses, Genesis 15, it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was saved, born again, whatever language you want to use. He came to faith at that moment. It must be the same for you. It must be the same for me. Huh? I mean, Abraham. Sorry, not Moses. Yes, Abraham got saved at that moment. Thank you. You are listening. That's really good. And so, just let me convince you that this thing of the new heaven and the new earth is not just John in Revelation. Isaiah prophesies in Isaiah 67. I will create a new heaven and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered. They will never come to mind. No longer will they build houses and live in them or plant or, uh, uh, things to eat. For as in the days of a tree, so will it be in the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. Isaiah is prophesying of the new heavens and the new earth. Even Peter does, 2 Peter, verse 3. In keeping with his promises we take, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. Peter pointing towards the new heaven and the earth. And then Revelation 21. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Clive said to me, that's very disappointing. There's no longer any sea because I love the sea as well. But you know what? If there's no, there's no sea in heaven... It's got to be something better than the sea. That's what I'm holding to. And so I'm trying to convince you this morning, as fantastic as our ideas are about heaven, as incomprehensible as our, our views of heaven might be, it's all, they're all nothing if we don't trust the promise of God. And that is everything is rooted in this amazing promise from God that is you. Uh, valid for you and for me and everyone who believes in Christ. And lastly, Romans 8 says this, The creation is subject to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage and brought into the freedom and the glory of the children of God. Isn't it amazing? Uh, Paul writing in Romans, he says, even the creation is groaning for redemption which comes in the new heaven and the new earth when Christ comes again. It's beautiful. The whole of the earth, everything that's been created is longing for redemption, is groaning for redemption that comes in Christ. And so I, I want to conclude simply this morning by saying this to you. Will you trust in God's promise to you? You can do that with confidence. You can live a fearless life because the one who promised Abraham is faithful to you. The one who was faithful to Jesus is faithful to you. And he is one whose promises can be trusted. I've tried to show you very briefly this morning. You can trust the promises of God to you.
but you have to accept them. You have to, by faith, accept them. And that's what we are required to do as Christians. And so, just as there was that time when the presence of God moved between the pieces of the animals to cut the covenant and make the covenant eternally binding and secure. That was an amazing event, wasn't it? But there's another even more amazing event that we celebrate every Easter. 2,000 years later, long after Abraham had left the earth, there was a gift given to us on Easter, an empty tomb made like that through the power of God. And the empty tomb is the sign, it's the covenant to you and to me that God has done all that he said he would do, that his promises are faithful and they can be trusted. And the heart of that promise is heaven for you and I. And it's possible because the tomb is empty, Jesus is alive, and that makes the promise of eternal heaven secure for you and for me and for everyone who believes by faith. Do you believe by faith this morning? If you don't, I'd love to pray with you. And I'm going to be here after the meeting, and I'd love to pray with you and just to introduce you to the Savior, Jesus, who is the faithful one through whom God has accomplished all that he promised. But I'm going to pray for all of us now, and I trust that you'll get excited, that it would enable you to live fearlessly, to live well, to live with courage, knowing that Jesus has all of this prepared for you. In my Father's house are many rooms. One of them is for you. One of them is for me. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you so much for your word that brings life to us. I want to thank you so much for this promise of heaven. Lord, I pray it wouldn't just be an academic thing that we think about, but Lord, in, the mo in those moments when we are fearful about our future, when we are fearful about our children's future, when we are faced with the death of a loved one, we pray in that moment you would remind us that for all of us that are in Christ, there's an eternal promise that you have made that is secure because of Jesus. And we lift up our eyes right now to that promise. And we remind ourselves, all those scriptures pointing to what Jesus has done. We look at the empty tomb, and we stand on the empty tomb with open hearts and say, Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? It is gone because of the love of Christ. And we stand on that love. We stand on that eternal security that has been bought for us, and we rejoice. Thank you that there are many rooms you have prepared for your children. And we rejoice. We look forward to all that you want to still do through our lives until we go to be with you in glory. And I pray that you enable us to live fearlessly and to live well and to live with courage, bringing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. In Jesus' name we pray. Everyone says, Amen.